starting at chapter 3, verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you, as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay overnight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for um, giving us your word and giving us your spirit, uh, which, who enables us to understand your word and think it through and apply it in our lives. We pray for ourselves now. We pray for the uh, young people in the hall that um, our minds and our lives would be changed as we are uh, uh, reminded again of your great power and your goodness for our benefit. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I come from a family that uh, loves uh, rugby league. And <clears throat> as a kid, uh, for us, uh, weekends were often uh, spent 
on Saturdays or Sundays out at uh, uh, <clears throat> rugby league matches. And especially when my uncle uh, was playing, he played for the, um, for the Roosters and then for the, uh, the Tigers. And uh, when he was playing a first grade match, uh, we'd definitely be there in the grandstand or on the side cheering him on. Um, I like to uh, also look not just at what's going on the field, but what's happening in the uh, crowds as well during sporting matches. And one thing I observed about crowd behaviour, which used to interest me, was this, and that is, it's the second half of the match, it's um, there's about 10 minutes or so left on the clock, but there'd be some people who'd start leaving. Uh, initially, it would just be a trickle, and then the trickle would turn into a sort of a more obvious little exodus going on. And the question is, why? Well, because one team was playing much better than the other. That's why. Um, <clears throat> more skill, more power, more points on the board. And so, 10 minutes left on the clock, the better team scores another try, converts the try, and people are thinking, well, there might be more footy to be played, but basically it's game over. No point in sticking around. Might as well head out to the car park, get out the gates before the traffic jam starts. <clears throat> you know what that's like, don't you? And sometimes in life, uh, when two sides are opposing one another, there is there's such a, a display of power a display of power which is so overwhelming that although the other side hasn't given up, everyone knows the end result. All that remains is the remaining minutes on the clock or the mopping up operation. Now, in the Bible, <clears throat> there are some events that are like that. Uh, events uh, where the power of God is so clearly displayed that it's obviously game over. Now one of those events is the event that uh, Julie read for us earlier on from uh, Joshua chapter 3 and today we're going to look at Joshua 3 and 4, uh, the whole of uh, two chapters, not just the section that was read to us. So if you want to open up your Bibles at Joshua 3 on page 152, remember the context We've got millions of Israelites, uh, men, women, uh, boys and girls, and all of their livestock. Uh, they are camped on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and something big is about to happen. They are now preparing themselves for an event which is absolutely amazing. Um, so. Before we get into the actual event, I want us to look at the preparation for that event in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 3. Um, first of all, we see that the Ark of the Covenant plays a central role in what's about to happen. Now, um, in the, those of you who are old enough to remember the Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the Ark of the Covenant was portrayed as uh, so, uh, um, an object of great um, supernatural power, uh, so much so that the Nazis were trying to track it down and archaeologists 
got involved and they thought it might win the war for them and so on. But, uh, you know, that's nice fiction. The Ark of the Covenant was an ordinary box. Uh, it contained inside it the, um, the tablets with, with the commandments, uh, the, uh, the staff of Aaron and some manna from the bread from the wilderness. But it was an ordinary box. There's no power in the box itself uh, but there is great power in the one whom the box represents. Great power. And so in chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 the priests of Israel would carry the ark and all of the people, the millions of people were going to fall in behind the priests, behind the ark um, keeping their distance so that they could see the way to go, so it would be clear where to go to. And I take it also so they get a good view of what was actually going on. But the presence of the ark shows that what is about to happen is not anything to do with Israel. It's not anything to do with natural causes. It's everything to do with the one who is represented by the ark, the presence of God. Now, secondly, in verse 5, everyone is to now consecrate themselves to God. That's a great thing to do, isn't it? And that's true for us. If, uh, when something big is about to happen, when something uh, that involves God and involves us, then it is right for us to consecrate ourselves, to come before God in prayer and to, uh, and so that we know that what is happening, it's not about us, it's about God. It's a God thing. It helps us to remember that we should trust and we should honour God. And this is what Israel is called to do, to consecrate themselves, to come before God in prayer uh, because what is about to happen is a mighty act of God. Thirdly, in verse 7, God now makes a promise to Joshua. Have a look at that, verse 7. Let me read it to you. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Now, one of the uh, problems of leadership in any group is the... Um, the problem of providing for succession. Uh, that is, uh, who takes over when a great leader retires? Who takes over when a great leader leaves? Who takes over when a great leader dies? Uh, and that, unless that's thought through properly in any organisation, that can lead to terrible instability, um, particularly... Uh, uh, where people jockey for position and it creates division and whole nations can be broken up into civil war uh, after the death of a leader as this kind of thing happens. As self-appointed leaders in particular try to fill the vacuum. Now, Moses is dead. Moses has led the people through the wilderness, led them out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness. He is now dead. And it is very important... It is very important for the people of Israel to know that Joshua was not self-appointed. 
that he was God's man, that he'd been anointed by the Lord to lead them and it was important for God to make this clear. Now, this event would prove it. So, what is the great event? What is, it that, what is this uh, uh, game over event? What, what is God going to do? A couple of weeks back, we um, here in church, uh, we were nice and comfortable and cosy whilst outside it was blowing an absolute gale and rivers around New South Wales and particularly in Tasmania, northern Tasmania, were, were flooding. Uh, they, the rivers had broken their banks and we saw the scenes on TV, didn't we, of the, the power of water as the rivers broke their banks and they just washed away anything in their path, cars, trucks, houses, nothing can hold back the power of the mighty power of water. And yet, in verses 9 through to 13 of chapter 3, God makes an extraordinary promise to Israel. When the priests, uh, when the priests carrying the ark set foot into the Jordan River, what would happen? Well, the waters that were flowing from downstream would be cut off and would stand up in a heap. Now, I don't know, can you imagine what, what that would look like? I mean, we're not talking about, you know, he doesn't say, look, the river's just going to be diverted or there's going to be a, a landslide that's going to, you know. No, it's, it's, it's going to be like a, a dam, but without a wall. <laughs> imagine that, just, just a wall of water. I mean... This is game over kind of stuff, isn't it? When you see that happening. Uh, now, these Israelites who were camped by the Jordan, these were the ones uh, who were not... Uh, uh, they, they did not experience in the same way the escape out of Egypt and the, the crossing over the, the Red Sea where God parted the sea. Uh, that was a great sign to the people of the previous generation uh, that this was a God thing, that the power of God in saving them out of Egypt. Uh, they were not part of that generation, but they're going to see this. They're going to see what God is about to do to bring them into the promised land. And so in verse 10, Joshua tells them that this is how they will know that the living God is amongst them and that they will certainly drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites and all the other ites that Julia read to us so nicely earlier on. All the other people that were living on the other side of the river. Um, last week we, I, I suggested to you that there's a word which we should we should. We could stop using the word faith and replace it with another word, didn't I? It was the word trust. Right. And so in the Bible, the words that are used for faith mean trust because faith is trust. Faith is trusting um, that something or someone is capable or will do certain things for us, that they are worthy of trust. So the question here is, if God can hold back uh, the, the waters of a mighty river, 
then can he be trusted to win a battle or two for Israel? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Obviously, yes. And so, in verses 14 through to 17, the Jordan stopped flowing. Imagine that. Imagine the effect that that would have had on the people living upstream as they saw this, this wall of water just surging upwards. And imagine the effect that would have had on the people living downstream as suddenly this river just dries up and people are not knowing what to make of it. Imagine that. And then the whole nation, millions of people and their livestock, cross over but on dry ground. And we can imagine people trying to explain that away, even uh, people today who, want to, who are critics of the Bible, uh, saying, well, you know, I mean, maybe the Israelites just found the shallow part of the water <laughs> and they sort of waded across. And, and, I mean, last week when we looked at the two spies, when they crossed over and came back, they, they, the Bible says that they forded the river. They did find these parts in the river that, which they could actually get, get across. But what we're talking about here is millions of people. More than that, what was the river like at this time? Well, if you have a look in verse 15, the author of Joshua makes a special point of telling us, doesn't he? Uh, he says that the river Jordan was... Uh, it wasn't uh, dry, was it? It was, it was flooding. It, this was flood season. It was flooding. That's what was happening. That is, what it's saying here is that God has picked the most unlikely time of the year for the Israelites to be able to cross. It's humanly impossible without a bridge. It's a bit like, um, God does this sometimes, doesn't he? A classic example, Elijah on Mount Carmel. <laughs> Remember the, the Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And it's this decisive moment where they're demonstrating who is the real God. If Baal is God, then worship him. If Yahweh is God, then worship him. So on the top of Mount Carmel, two altars are established, sacrifices are placed on the altar, and it's whose God will light the sacrifice without a match. The prophets of Baal, they're praying, they're chanting, they're dancing around, they're cutting themselves, they're, and nothing, nothing happens. Elijah prays to God. Well, what else does he do? What else does he do to the sacrifice? What else does he do to the altar? He saturates it with water, and then the thing ignites. <laughs> He makes it very obvious, very clear that this is no fluke, that this is a demonstration of who truly is God. And this is what's happening here. This is why the author of Joshua makes the point that the river is in flood season. It's game over, isn't it? It's, this is game over for the enemies of God when they see this happening. It's a demonstration of power also which Israel should never forget. Now have a look at, let's move into chapter 4 here and have a look at 
chapter 4, verses 4 through to 7. Let me read that for you. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Now, (coughs) I take it these were big stones. They had to carry them on their shoulders. Um, Twelve stones and they are heaped up in a pile on top of each other. So it's not exactly what you'd call a beautiful monument, is it? But it's a great monument. It's a great monument because these stones were not taken from the edge of the river. Where were these stones taken from? They were taken from the middle of the river. They were taken from the deepest part of the river bed, which means that these stones are a great reminder that God had stopped the water. You couldn't get these stones unless the water had been stopped. You couldn't even dive down and get them because they were so heavy that you'd have to carry them on your shoulder to get back up. A great reminder of the power of God in stopping the water. And the reason is this. The reason that these stones are piled up is so that um, in the future, you know, when the you know, Israelite families are having a picnic down by the Jordan River and the children see these pile of stones and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren and the generation, when the kids say, what are these stones here for? What do they represent? And the parents are able to say to them, they're able to tell them the story of how God enabled Israel to enter into the promised land. By the way, does this remind you of another memorial that's already happened for Israel? Let's go back to Exodus for a moment. Can you come with me to Exodus chapter 12? In Exodus chapter 12 and See, how about the Passover? What do you think about the Passover? Let's have a look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 24, on page 48. And Moses is telling people about uh, preparing them to, to do the Passover. And he says, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants... When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. 
And then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. It's the same deal, isn't it? It's teaching the children. Uh, the Passover reminds Israel how God brought them out of Egypt by the shedding of the blood of the sacrificial lamb, by being covered with that blood, that the judging spirit of the Lord passed over those who were covered in the blood of the lamb. And that's how he brought them out of Egypt. The Passover reminds Israel of that. The stone monument reminds Israel not how God brought them out of Egypt, but of how God brought them into the land he had promised to Abraham. And both are for the sake of the children, the next generation. And by the way, that's the reason why here in church we always have our children participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, we don't exclude children because they haven't publicly professed their faith. We see it as a way that they can actually grow in their faith. Uh, its purpose is to help the next generation to learn and to grow in their knowledge and their love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that uh, like the stones and like the Passover, it's a very, uh, very tangible, very regular, very communal, uh, very covenantal uh, way that we teach our children of God's great power as God's covenantal community together. We teach our children and remind ourselves how God has saved us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So that's why we do that in church. Now, let's get back to the story. Because in verses four, in chapter 4, verses 10 through to 18, uh, three things happened. Um, first of all, all of the Israelites hurried across the riverbed. I don't know why it says that they hurried across. <laughs> there might have just been a big crowd wanting to get across. They might have been thinking, I can see that wall of water up there. Oh, I'm getting through here pretty quickly. <laughs> let's just hurry across. Um, Secondly, all Israel now knew with great clarity that Joshua was God's chosen leader. Just as Moses had been, his leadership is confirmed. And thirdly, the priests with the ark, they stepped out of the riverbed last and when they did that, that great pile of water came tumbling down. I would have loved to have been there to see that. Wouldn't that be great? You know, at a football match, I'm the kind of person who would never leave 10 minutes before the full-time whistle. <laughs> Even if the scoreboard says with absolute clarity that it would be an absolute miracle uh, if my team won because if the scoreboard says it's game over and even if it's, if it's my team that's, that's losing I'm not going to walk out 10 minutes beforehand because I like to get my money's worth 
And I, I don't want to miss a thing. I, when I go to the movies, at the end of the movie, I am that irritating person who you can't move past because I'm sitting there, I want to watch all the credits <laughs> as I roll up. I'm the last person because I don't want to miss a single thing. The stopping of the Jordan River sent out a message. A message to Israel and a message to all the nations. And the message was simple. We see it in verse 24, right at the very end of chapter 4. Verse 24. Why did God do this? Well, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now the word fear there means to respect and to honour. Uh, it's not fear in terms of it's the enemies of God who need to be fearful but we fear him in a sense we honour and we respect him. Basically what that's saying is it's game over for the Canaanites and all the other rites. Uh, in fact, um, just to kind of preview next week, uh, in chapters uh, 5 and 6, their hearts melted at the news of what God had done with that river. Absolutely melted with fear. And rightly so. Uh, whilst on the other hand, Israel had every reason now to be confident. The battle, it's as good as over. Any battles that they're going to have on the other side of the river, well, it's just more of a formality than anything else because of this game over event. So then, apart from being a great Sunday school story, um, how does the crossing of the Jordan River help us in, in understanding uh, God and what God has done for us and who we are uh, now as a result of God's work. Well, like, like many of the great events of the, of the Old Testament, uh, this event points us to a future reality. Uh, the promised land is, is no longer a piece of real estate uh, in the Middle East, the, the nation of Israel. Uh, that uh, plot of ground was a shadow of a future reality. Uh, that is, it was a physical model which points us to uh, the spiritual reality of the, of the rest that God promises to us. And that is heaven. Uh, that uh, reality where sins are forgiven and where God's people uh, live God's way uh, in God's place forever. It took the great power of God to get Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It took the great power of God uh, to bring Israel into the land that he had promised Abraham. And we've seen that great power in the passage today uh, and previously in the parting of the Red Sea. But the question therefore is, have we experienced the power of God? 
And well, the answer is yes, we have. Uh, even more so. But sometimes we can lose sight of that uh, reality because we, uh, we've, we've not really comprehended what God has done for us in Christ. You see, uh, as fallen human beings, we are all, uh, have all been enslaved to the evil one. Uh, because uh, as fallen human beings in our natural state, we, uh, we, uh, we live our lives in rebellion against our creator. And you know what? That is exactly what Satan wants us to do. And because of the guilt of our sin, we are subject to God's wrath. And that is also what Satan wants for us. But when God's son, Jesus, became the Passover lamb by dying on the cross, that was a very, very powerful sacrifice. That was a powerful sacrifice, a sacrifice so powerful that it was sufficient to pay the penalty for, for sin, for, for your sin, for my sin, for the sins of people of all time, of all places. It was incredibly powerful sacrifice. It was enough that by paying the penalty for sin, that Satan's grip over us has been broken. Um, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul, in describing this, says that uh, Satan has been publicly disarmed uh, because the power that he had over us, uh, the accusing finger that says you're guilty, you're subject to God's wrath, well, that's been done away with. That's been cancelled because the debt's been paid. So he's got no power over us anymore. We're free from our slavery. And that's come about through the death of Christ. And so the... the, um, <coughs> the, the <coughs> The Passover points us to Jesus' death on the cross and the parting of the Jordan points us to his resurrection. Um, listen to how Paul, um, Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll just read it for you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 and 20 to 23 where... Uh, Paul says that uh, he, he prays for the Ephesian church and he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's our heavenly hope. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, says Paul, is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the age to come. So how has God's great power been at work for us 
Paul says, it was when he raised Jesus from the dead. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not only, it's not merely a man coming back to life, as impressive as that is in the case of people like Lazarus and uh, Jairus' daughter and so on. The resurrection of Jesus is powerful for it proves that the death of Christ was sufficient to pay for sin, that the debt has now been paid for, that we're out of Egypt, and it proves to us that the way to heaven has now been opened. We can walk across the Jordan uh, if we put our trust in Christ and start living for him. Have you done that yet, by the way? The resurrection of Jesus is the game-over event of all time. Satan is now in great fear. Satan trembles because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because you know what? He knows that his game's over. He knows that his doom is writ. For the death and the resurrection of Jesus has defeated him already. He's still on the field. He's still playing the game. He's looking at the clock. But he's on the field and he's playing the game. And until the Lord Jesus returns again, he's going to inflict as much damage as he possibly can. Or try to. Right? And so we do need to guard against him. But although we need to guard against him and pray against him, you know what? We actually don't need to fear him. We don't need to fear him because the resurrection of Jesus means that the river has been stopped. <laughs> The resurrection of Jesus means that we're on the winning side. And of course, of course, in this life, we will certainly face all sorts of battles, physical battles, emotional battles, spiritual battles. But because of Jesus, we can look forward with confidence to the glorious riches of our eternal heavenly inheritance. It's on the other side of the Jordan and the way has been cleared for you and for me. We can be confident. We can be confident as Satan is trembling in his boots. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty, your awesome power. We thank, thank you for the way that's been demonstrated in the exodus from Egypt and in the entry into Canaan by your mighty power holding back that water and creating the pathway through for your people to enter on dry ground. We thank you so much, Lord God, that your awesome power has been most clearly 
and supremely demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We thank you that by his resurrection he shows that we're out of the slavery of sin. And Lord God, the way has been cleared uh, for all of your people to enter into your heavenly peace, your heavenly rest. We thank you for that. And we pray that even through the battles and the skirmishes of life, that we would not lose sight of that reality. For we know that the evil one is done for. It's game over for him. And we thank you that we can be confident because you are a God who is so trustworthy. We pray all these things now in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen.